Hello, everyone. This is Then Again with the Northeast Georgia History Center. I am your host, Glenn, and today we have brought in some history that most people are not used to. They have an incredibly vague idea of what it could be, but with me is Dr. Timothy May of the University of North Georgia, and his area of expertise is Mongolian history. Welcome, Dr. May. Thank you, Glenn. It's a pleasure to be here today. Let me start off with one of the most obvious questions. What got you interested in Mongolian history of all things? When I was in fifth grade, I read a book by Harold Lamb. If you're not familiar with him, he wrote many biographies and histories in the 1930s and 40s. And I found this in my fifth grade library in my elementary school, and I, it fascinated me. Um, and I had an interest in the Mongols after that. It kind of rolled around in my head for a while. And then when I was in college, at some point, I was trying to figure out what kind of history I was really interested in. And I read another book uh, that had to deal with the Mongols, and that all clicked for me. And after that, that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. That That's usually how things go. You get a hook and it sticks with you. Uh, so let's start from um, the general population's view of Mongolian history, especially here in the United States. We are so terribly unfamiliar with it. I think the only thing we know about is we've heard of Genghis Khan and that's about it. All right. Never utter that title again, unless you are simply reading it from a book or a movie poster or something like that. The proper title is Chinggis Khan. Um, Chinggis Khan. We can all say Cha, so it's Chinggis. And we know this because it's on a uh, stone that was found in Mongolia um, commemorating an event there. Basically, there was a warrior who shot a bow and the arrow flew for roughly about 500 yards. And so they put a stone, uh, Chinggis Khan, commemorated by having this inscribed on a stone and telling about this feat. So it's known as the Chinggis stone and we clearly have his name inscribed on that stone the proper way it's supposed to be said um, and written in the Mongolian alphabet and it is a title it means firm or fierce ruler Khan means ruler king whatever you want to call it um, but uh, there's been some different interpretations an earlier one that he was the oceanic ruler um, but I don't find that interpretation and etymology be as convincing um, either way it's a title his real name is Temujin that's his given name. But when he united Mongolia, he received the title of Chinggis Khan. And I think it fits quite well. So so how did Chinggis Khan, uh, why, what did he do? What sort of is the, the main thing that he did that has made him world famous and a familiar name, even if mispronounced usually here in the Western world that we may not know anything, but we've heard that name. Well, first and foremost, he established the Mongolian Empire, which became the largest contiguous empire in history. The only empire that's been larger was the British Empire, but does that really count considering that much of what they ruled consisted of moose and kangaroo? Um, <laughs> the other thing he did is that he personally conquered more territory than anybody else, more than Napoleon, more than Alexander the Great, more than Julius Caesar. You pick a conqueror, he's done more. And he was indeed a military genius. He introduced many reforms, but one of the most important was that he set up a system that would lead to training generals so that the Mongols produce numerous, really talented generals in an era where, you know, you occasionally had military genius, but after that, you did not have consistency in command. Whereas the 
models just kept churning them out on a regular basis. So I've, I've, I've committed a faux pas. I realized that we haven't actually talked about exactly what time period we're talking about for Chinggis Khan and, and the empire. Yes, uh, Chinggis Khan was born roughly around 1162. There's some dispute about his date, but 1162 is generally accepted. And he dies in 1227. And the height of the Mongol Empire is um, from 1206 to, well, then it, it differs. Um, you have a united empire where everything is both hunky and dory going until 1206. Then you have some uh, civil wars and whatnot, but it continues in various stages until it starts to sort of dissolve. It never really falls. It dissolves and fades away. Um, you can definitely say by 1388, it exists in various forms in various places, but it's no longer a united empire in any way shape or form so but the but the culture remains as is the culture you know that they're forgive me if i'm getting this wrong but they're primarily a, a tribal culture correct are you talking about today i'm talking about in the past in the past in, in the medieval period yes it was a tribal culture and that's uh, one of the the main things that Chinggis khan did and why he's considered the founder of mongolia was that when he's born there's numerous tribes and mongolia's had numerous empires before them uh, it was not known as mongolia uh, Mongolia gets its name because of the Mongol Empire and the fact that there are Mongols. But before this, the Mongols were only one out of numerous tribal groups um, in the area. And when he unites the empire, what he does is makes everybody a Mongol. The identity of a tribe in the nomadic society is it takes its identity from the leading lineages or family groups. And so what he does is he eradicates the, the other aristocratic lineages so that by the time he's done, his family is the only one that matters. And so everyone's a Mongol afterwards. And this is why he is the founder and father of modern Mongolia as well. So how, what was, what was life like for the average person uh, at the height of the empire? Well, who are we talking about? Are we talking about Joe Peasant who gets conquered by the Mongols or are we talking about Joe Nomad? Let's talk about Joe Nomad first. Nomad. Okay. Well, nomads, um, well, they're nomadic for one thing, uh, which means that they live in the steppes and they're quite happy to do so. They basically raise a variety of livestock, where the horse being the most important because you can't do it without horses. But most of the animals are going to be sheep, primarily because they're both tasty and very useful. Um, you'll use their wool for a variety of things. They're not going to turn it into yarn, but rather they pound it into felts. And from this, you'll get clothing, you'll get the coverings for their tents, which are known as gares, known more popularly in America as yurts. Um, but that's not really a Mongolian term, and it doesn't really refer to the tent, but rather the kind of territory of a person. But we get that meaning from Russians, who kind of sort of understood what it meant. Um, but basically, that round tent is going to be covered with felt, and it's quite warm in the winter. Uh, winter in Mongolia gets into the negative 30s. Ulaanbaatar, the capital Mongolia today is the coldest capital on the planet. Um, so you want something nice and warm. Uh, but besides horses and sheep, you're going to have goats, some cattle, or depending on the altitude, maybe yaks or a crossbreed known as a hainag. Um, and of course, camel. We're talking about the two hump variety, which if you have to ride one, I prefer that because you get a backrest. <laughs> I've ridden both and back trains are better. Take us 
I know this is a big step, but that's that's sort of the popular knowledge and imagination of what Mongolia was. Can you quickly take us from that point to the to the 19th and 20th centuries? Okay. In the late 17th century, Mongolia will become part of the Qing Empire or the Manchu Empire, which rules not only China, but Manchuria, Tibet, and Mongolia. Much of what modern China uh, gets its shape from is from the Qing period because they incorporated areas that were not part of it. Um, but in 1911, Mongolia gains its independence, and it remains that way for a while. Then the World War I breaks out, the Bolshevik Revolution, Russia no longer backs it. And so it comes under some loose control of China, mainly warlords. And then in, we get the 1921 Revolution, uh, which is preceded by white Russians moving in and help restore independence. And it's ruled by the Jepsendamba Hutuktu, who is the a Buddhist leader. Basically, if you're looking at uh, Tibetan Buddhism, you have the Dalai Lama, then the Panchen Lama, then the Jepsendamba Hutuktu. Um, and so it's a theocracy for a few years. But with the 1921 revolution, uh, the Soviet Union comes in, expels um, and kills Baron Erngern, Erngern von Sternberg, um, who is the white Russian, who both is a liberator and is one wild and crazy dude. <laughs> Not a good idea to get on his bad side. And if you ever look at any uh, pictures of him, you can kind of see the madness in his eyes. From 1921 until about 1991, as with the rest of the Soviet Union, it was, for all intents and purposes, the 16th Republic of the Soviet Union. I mean, it was independent officially, but the policies that are enacted in Mongolia mirror those that happen in the Soviet Union. So the uh, Buddhism, which was the dominant religion, gets largely eradicated. Thousands of Buddhist lamas are killed or forcibly brought out of the religion. But, you know, besides the terror and whatnot, there's also many good things. Um, Mongolia will quickly get a very high literacy rate of 96, 97%. Um, their language will undergo some changes. They'll, they'll adopt the Cyrillic alphabet, which also means that they revise the grammar and other things to reflect more how people are speaking rather than the literate culture that reflected more, and like, for instance, how words were spelled before this happens are you, you have a system of how things are spelled, but people are no longer pronouncing them that way. But with the, the new system that changes everything. So spellings reflect how things are actually being pronounced at the time. And so which then makes literacy easier. However, when you change uh, alphabets and things like that, you also then make everyone um, disconnected with the past. They can't read that. And then the 1990s, we have basically the fall of the Soviet Union and also Mongolia becomes independent. And while the nomadic population existed at the time during the Soviet period, they also underwent collectivization. Um, and we saw the nomads resist that as well, as many did in other parts of the Soviet Union. And just for instance, the, the, the herd population dropped by millions as herders slaughtered their animals rather than go under collectivization. But with the end of communism, Mongolia went to become a democracy and a market system uh, democracy. And, you know, that sounds good in many ways. They're, they're, it did not go without some hitches. Um, for instance, you went from a fully funded medical system to one where people are paying and having to adapt to that and not fully understanding. They went from a very good medical system to one that's had some challenges uh, in terms of acquiring equipment, maintaining salaries for doctors. In the early 2000s, they started bricking up the windows on the lower levels of hospitals so people couldn't sneak out uh, when they found out they had to pay. 
<laughs> there's been a uh, decrease uh, in, or actually, I'm sorry, rather an increase in infant mortality uh, because of the end of that. Um, also some challenges with education system. Um, but, you know, it, it's still kicking on. There, there's still some issues with the political system and democracy. A lot of people become disillusioned with corruption. I, I know that's shocking that there's corruption in politics. What? No. Yeah, uh, particularly with uh, crony capitalism and so forth. <laughs> Uh, you know, everything you see here, you, you see there as well. So, but most of the population is no longer nomadic. And this has been affected by numerous things, including climate change. It is a real thing, despite what people might want to say. And you see it there where instead of, you know, the once every 10 year storms that, you know, we experience here, whereas hurricanes, you, you get these devastating hurricanes like once every decade. Now we get them every year. In Mongolia, they experience what are known as juds. And these are frightful winter storms and they're right there's a different variety of, of jude but basically what a jude means is something where it eliminates the pasture it could be a drought or it could be an ice storm but now we're getting these where the snow is so thick and heavy that the animals can't get to the grass at all and they freeze to death and as i said the, the temperatures get to negative 30 and the animals are bred to be resilient but when you can't get to any pasture you can't get to any food and they can't even bring you food then they die in the millions and you've had herders who become completely destitute and so they move to an urban setting and because of that mongolia which has a population which recently became three million and this is in a country that's the size of the united states east of the mississippi wow um you said you, you said know, three million yeah east of the mississippi and three million people and so now roughly 60 percent of the population are non-nomadic and most of them live in ulaanbaatar Ulaanbaatar has about 1.5 million people. So about half of them live there and then in other urban areas. So it's greatly changed. Ulaanbaatar itself has changed dramatically since I first went there in 2004. Um, to today. I mean, you have everything from, you know, skyscraper type buildings that would look like anywhere to um, these gear districts where you have the tents on the outlying of the city. And in the winter, it, it can be pretty bad because most people heat their homes with cold, which means a lot of pollution, particularly since Ulaanbaatar is kind of in a, in a valley or bowl-shaped depression. So the smog just kind of lays there. Uh, many people will send their kids out to the countryside to live with relatives to, to escape that. Uh, during the worst parts. So you so you've been there how many times now? I don't know, uh, five, six times. So a lot of times. So um, first of all, I don't think it's any coincidence that they gained their independence when Dr. Timothy May took an interest in their country's history. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> so, but, but but second, so having been there, you, you've talked about some of the bigger issues and, and some of the things that you know the challenges and the successes they've had as a quote unquote modern nation. How cool is it? Like boots on the ground, just to just to be in that culture. How how similar, how different, how fun. I love it. Uh, I would go to Mongolia in a heartbeat. Um, I have an acquaintance who has moved there permanently. Um, he, he likes it because it's, the U.S. can be trying at times. And he finds life in Mongolia to be a little bit more laid back and easier and whatnot. As he says, for an old man, it's, it's kind of <laughs> nice. Uh, but, you know, it, Mongolia is a place where, as I tell my students, it's where vegans go to die. Because um, they're going to starve. Um, the diet of Mongolia is meat and dairy, or conversely, dairy and meat. 
Um, vegetables do not grow well. It's not, I'm not saying that you can't get them there. It's just more difficult. And if you go to Ulaanbaatar, you can find vegetables and fruit because it's flown in. But once you leave that area, it's going to be more difficult. You know, at the same time in, in Ulaanbaatar, just to show you how it's changed today, there's roughly 20 uh, Kentucky fried chickens. <laughs> well, they've got to serve out uh, one and a half million people. So, meanwhile, Dahlonega and Dawsonville, there currently isn't any. There's one coming. We will be safe. <laughs> but in, in Mongolia, you know, there's there's 20 of them every place. And just to put this in context, one of the first times I went there, a friend of mine took me to a restaurant, and I got mutton, which is what most of your food's going to be is mutton, and I love mutton. But it's not something you get here in Georgia on a regular basis. It's not like you go to most restaurants. You might get a rack of lambs someplace, but you know, just random mutton. No. Uh, but my friend ordered chicken because he felt like it was a special occasion. You don't have chickens. Um, you know, they're, they're importing chicken meat because you don't see the, you know, the steps with herds of chickens. <laughs> that would be something. It would be something because the wolves would destroy them and have a great time doing it. There are still wolves out there um, and you don't want to get rid of the wolves because they help keep other things uh, under control. Um, as long as they have other things to eat and not your sheep, but you know, that's a different story. Um, so yeah, the, the diet's quite different. I don't, I haven't noticed as much anymore, but it was great going to Mongolia because since everyone's eating mutton and they get, you know, mutton grease on their hands and whatnot, even the money begins to smell like mutton. <laughs> and if you like mutton, it's great. But again, I haven't noticed as much the past few times I've been there. Another acquaintance of mine, he's Mongolian. When he was studying in England, he decided to become a vegetarian, partially because of his own Buddhist beliefs. Um, but, you know, when he was, when he came back to Mongolia, you know, he, he knew the reality. And instead of being a vegetarian, he called himself a, either a teatarian or a vodkatarian, depending on the night. Um, it's not easy to live a vegetarian or, and definitely not a vegan lifestyle outside of Ulaanbaatar. Got a fascinating history. We've got the steppes, the nomads. They bring us into the 20th century. It's a modern independent state now. But why, as an expert in this area as and as a, a lover of Mongolian culture, why is it important that we study this part of the world and its history and its culture? Well, again, um, Mongolia has been the home to numerous empires. And usually they only get mentioned in passing in like a world history textbook or something like that. Because usually the focus is on like, you know, China or Europe or Middle Eastern empires and stuff like that. But at the same time, there's always been empires out in the steppe land, most of them based in Mongolia. And then you get the Mongol Empire and the Mongols changed everything. The legacy of the Mongol Empire still affects us today. Um, in many ways, the modern era begins with the Mongols because they completely changed the map. They completely changed how the world viewed each other. Um, part of the reason why Christopher Columbus sails is because he's trying to find the court of the Khans and to get you know spices that are cheaper uh, because there's memories of when they were. And that was, again, because the Mongols controlled everything. And so this made it easier for merchants to get across. Asia and so forth. So prices went down because you had security, you had easier access. But as I said, the legacy of the Mongols lives on. There's numerous nations that have spawned off of the Mongol Empire, uh, the Uzbeks, the Kazakh. In Afghanistan today, I mean, Afghanistan is usually referred to as the graveyard of the empires. The Mongols ruled it for over 200 years without really any issues. Um, they were the dominant power. They they used it as a base of operations uh, and, and actually fought each other for control over it because of 
Afghanistan's own importance for trade routes, for caravans and so forth. Uh, much of the Middle East has been shaped by the Mongols. Of course, what is now Russia, China, all of Asia has been affected by the Mongol Empire in one way or the other. And today, it remains useful because it's a democracy in an area where you don't really have much democracy. And Mongolia, it's wedged between Russia and China, two behemoths. And they're always looking for what they call a third neighbor, be it the European Union, South Korea, Japan, the United States. And Mongolia has a stated policy of neutrality, non-nuclear interests. And they're well positioned to be a key player in diplomacy, particularly, for instance, with North Korea. They, they're on very good relations with North Korea from their days as, you know, connected with the Soviet Union. But just in terms of beyond the Soviet bloc, they, they have favorable relations with North Korea as well as South Korea. They help intermediate uh, relations with that. And there was some thought that, you know, Mongolia would be a good place to host conferences um, between diplomats of any state and North Korea as a neutral party. There, there's North Korean workers in Mongolia, um, and there are Mongolian workers in South Korea as well. Also, if uh, you're interested in sporting affairs, most of the Yokozunas in recent history in Japan for sumo wrestling are Mongolian. Because huh. um, they Mongolia, always eat mutton, right? They always eat mutton, and <laughs> but wrestling is a very popular sport in Mongolia. But beyond that, also we have, in terms of what's happening in musical trends the the who band hu not as in you know pete townsend but <laughs> the who band kind of stormed the world in the past couple of years uh, particularly in heavy metal uh, with that performance uh, with, with their performances where they're blending what people call folk metal uh, mongolian instruments and traditions with heavy rock music heavily influenced by metallica and other groups like that but you know these are classically trained musicians who've made an impact and actually they're performing in atlanta in october i think uh, i bet I know who has tickets. Uh, no, he doesn't because, well, uh, many people don't want to recognize there's still a pandemic going on. So, um, oh, you got to sacrifice for that music, man. I, I'm tempted, but at the same time, I feel like I should be healthy enough to teach my students who actually want to learn about Mongolia and the Mongols. Touche, so, <laughs> touche. You know, it's one of those crazy ideas that, you know. <laughs> Personal responsibility should be in there. Yeah, somewhere, somewhere. Somewhere. Well, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Dr. May, for joining us today and enlightening us. So, folks, if you want to learn more about something you don't know about, follow Dr. May's rules and look up Chinggis Khan and any other books you can find on it. Dr. May, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome, sir. Thanks for having me. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.